And what we're reading, again, we spent a lot of time looking in the Kings, uh, early part of 1 Kings, to look at the life of Solomon. And again, even though some of the stuff we're reading in the Old Testament is like, well, this is Israel, this is Kings, and stuff like that, God said he put those things in there for our learning, for that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. That is, it's the same God dealing with Solomon. It's not that we are the nation of Israel, but he has the same God as we do. And things like that. And God is, uh, he does do certain things by his dispensations, but his nature is the same. And there are certain things that are timeless. And so that's what we particularly focus on is the timeless issues. But we dealt with Solomon. We dealt with how God's being faithful to his covenant and giving David a a, uh, son to rule. And he was a glorious son, glorious king, pictures Jesus Christ incredibly wealthy and, and wise. And then we see at the end, he fails that picture in that he takes on many, many wives. And of all people who can ruin Solomon, it wasn't an army and it wasn't lack of wisdom in the sense of knowledge. It was women. And he let all these women get to him because primarily they were pagan women and they turned away his heart and they caused him to go to the wrong church, if I can put it in today's vernacular and worship false gods, and not just do that, but give immensely toward it and build temples for them. And because of that, because of Solomon turning his heart, not being perfect, that is, finishing the course, complete with the Lord, because Solomon turned his heart in that sense and compromised toward the end, God said, all right, I'm going to uh, send a punishment here, but it's going to be on the next generation, not while Solomon's alive. Um, Although God did send a few current uh, uh, enemies while Solomon was alive uh, to afflict him, adversaries. But now God's going to split the kingdom of Israel. How many tribes is it split up in right now? Or currently, when Solomon, what was the tribes? It was 12, and so he'd split it. And uh, David would have two, that is Judah and Benjamin. And then the other one uh, would be 10 tribes because of that thing that Solomon did. And Rehoboam would take ten of the tribes, and he would be king over ten of the tribes. And the sons of David, that is Solomon and Solomon's descendants, they would have the two tribes so that God would say, I'm going to keep my promise still to always have a son of David on the throne. And it ultimately was filled in Jesus Christ. So you have a split here in chapter um, 12. You have a split of the kingdom. Jeroboam takes the ten. He, was a work, he worked under Solomon, and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, takes the two tribes, and that ended up being where Christ comes from. Now, the thing that I'm saying a lot, but the very thing that brought Jeroboam to the, to the stage was what? The failure of Solomon doing, being compromising and uh, building these God, uh, houses for uh, temples for these false gods. The very thing that brought Jeroboam to the picture to, be, to, to steward these other tribes as a, as a um, in a sense, a punishment to, this, to, those, to that nation is the very thing now he turns to. He becomes the pro- problem himself of what called him into the picture in the first place of somebody else being that problem. Now he turns to the same things. Let's just read it here again, chapter... Chapter 12, verse 25, Jeroboam is now creating an alternate uh, form of worship. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Then Jeroboam built Shechem 
in Mount Ephraim and dwelt there and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's, here's this king of the ten tribes. God says, if you just follow me, everything's going to be fine. And then that's Jeroboam. And then Rehoboam, Solomon's son, has the two. And Jeroboam's looking over and he's seeing all these people going through his country down into the other two tribes. He's like, he's getting insecure. I'm going to lose these people. I'm going to lose them. But God said, no, you won't. If you just follow me, you'll be able to be king for a long time for these. No, no, I'm going to lose them. Is it what his heart, what his heart said? He believed his heart. So he says, I got to do something. I got to create a different type of church scenario to keep people. You know, that's basically what he does. All right, so verse, if this people go up to do sacrifice, verse 27, the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again to Jeroboam, even under Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam. Verse 28, so he does a survey and finds out how to do church again from people instead of from the Scripture. The king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He's going to have two satellite churches. And said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, that's kind of that southern area where he was over, and the other put he in Dan, that's the northern section. So he had these regional places of worship. And this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. So he's creating his own clergy by his own rules. Verse 32, and Jeroboam ordained a feast. Now he's creating his own set of holidays. He ordained a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So we'll stop right there. So this is the context. This guy would have been something. God says, here, I'll give you ten tribes. Take care of them. Follow me and you'll be good. Rehoboam's going to have these other two. And he does it, and he thinks, wait a minute, I've got to change the worship thing. And, he, and he, he, he presumes to change God's basic pattern of worship. And, and it becomes a sin. This is something, by the way, this is no joke. Verse 30, it says, this thing became a sin. So I, you, right, uh, reading that at first, like, ah, it's not a, yeah, it's kind of sin. Do you realize that for the next, I think it's like 200 years, they keep referring back to that, that decision. Oh, the, that king did like what Jeroboam did who made Israel to sin. Oh, that king, he copied Jeroboam who made Israel to sin. It's amazing. Sometimes our sins and our choices can have long-standing effects on the generations that follow. So he does this. So he creates this kind of alternative uh, form of worship that looks like in some ways what God had in the Scripture, but not exactly. And, um, and so now he's doing his thing. He made his own preachers. He made his own places of worship and his own visuals, these golden calves. 
and a holiday that's not exactly on the same day, but it's one month later, and he's got an altar. And so what we looked at last time was, you know, traits of man-made religion, and that's what we looked at. This is man-made. Tonight, we're going to look at the emphasis of traits of a man of God. And I think we can apply some of this as man or woman of God, not that women preacher, are preachers or prophets in this sense, but traits of men or women of God we get from this anonymous person here. Amen. All right, so here we go. As we read into verse 13, I'm going to try to just read these verses and not give too much commentary. But there's this preacher that just interrupts the worship service. <laughs> He comes in and just messes the whole worship service up. Here we go. Chapter 13, verse 1. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. That was one of the places of their worship. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. <clears throat> and he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall burn, be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out, and it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he had cried against the altar in, in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up, so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again. And it became as it was before. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me, and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went, so he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. So we're going to look at traits of this man of God, and I think it could be similar to today. Traits of the man of God. We see that there was a revelation. I'll give you the quick kind of the headings. There was a revelation through a man of God. There was retaliation at the man of God. There was reinforcement from God for the man of God. There was a request <laughs> to the man of God, and there was a restraint that this man of God had to practice. Those are the kind of our five, five headings. But notice... Chapter 13, verse 1, Behold, and behold, there came a man of God out of Judah. A man of God. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, you have uh, Jeroboam. I mean, he's, he's, man, it's cool. He's got his golden 
calf up in Dan. He's got the shiny calf down here in Bethel. He's got a cool altar. He's got his cool priests. And he's part of it, man. He's at the altar doing something, burning something. And this is awesome. And he's like, everybody likes this. I'm, I'm sweeping up the crowds. Not all of them are going down to Jerusalem. They're coming here now. And he's having a grand old time. And the Bible talks about the person that made the difference in this moment. Now, is this man of God. We're going to look at, there's another side of his story that we want to look at later where there was a failure. But this is God showing us the, this upside that we need to know of this man of God. Let me ask you this question. If I were to say, now, um, now Brother Guy was in the Navy, so we could say, in a way, how long, Brother Guy, how long did you spend um, at sea, maybe the longest? Six months straight? Yeah. Brother Guy was often above the, the, the commander, or they call it the commander of the ship? Captain. Captain, up in a tower, dealing with stuff up there. And uh, so Brother Guy would be six months longest he was at the sea. If you have a person who's a man of the sea, what does that mean? What's that? What's that? That's right. A man of the sea is describing a sailor, a man who spends time with the ocean, a man characterized by the ocean, a man uh, characterized by the sea. I think they would even say, have you ever heard of the phrase, a man of the soil? That would describe what? A farmer. Why would they say that, a man of the soil? He's characterized, yeah, he's dealing with the soil. He's, he's time with the soil. He smells like the soil, <laughs> or, you know, he's got it on him. A man of the soil is the person characterized by time spent with the soil, looks like it, he's familiar with it. A man of the sea is a person who's characterized by somebody who spends time at sea and is characterized by it and knows it. What do you think a man of God means? A person who's characterized by God. They're a person, they spend time with God and they know God and God is in them and on them in that sense. It... Um, there's also, you could say, a man of God means belonging to God. They, he belongs, it's kind of like a man of the sea, he belongs to the sea. The man of the soil, he belongs to that, to that field out there. A man of God is a person, he belongs, he's, character, he's just, how would you, he's characterized by God, he belongs to God, spends time with God. You know, I think it's, it's, it's uh, conceptual, it's, it's conceivable to say that there are men of God who may not necessarily be pastors, people who can be said to be, he's a man of God. And I think it can be said that there's people who could say are women of God because they're what? They're characterized by God. They, they spend time with God in as much as a sailor, was, sailor knows the sea and spends time with the sea. A woman knows God and spends time with God. And she, people that could see her and know her could say, that's a woman of God. Not that she is a pulpiteer or a prophet or a pastor or anything, but that it's like I, I'm with God and I, I have things that I say that it's like what God has said. I have things that I can communicate to you that God has communicated to me to give to you. So we can be women of God and men of God, regardless of the, the New Testament spiritual gift. Okay, We can be men and women of God. Obviously here, this is a man who was specifically also a prophet doesn't give his name, but he's a man of God. So here's traits of this man of God that I think maybe we can, we can work with 
If we are women of God and men of God as well, I think we can relate with these five traits. Number one, there was revelation. Look what it says. Again, the man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel and to Jeroboam, who stood by the altar. So a person of God is going to be listening to God and get revelation in the sense of God's going to talk to you. Now, we don't believe in like brand new revelation. Like somebody says, Pastor, I want you to know tonight i got revelation to give in testimony time. God told me that um, um, Brother Brian is supposed to give $100,000 to a new uh, building fund. You know, they can't say stuff like that. Brian would be like, that's of the devil. There's nothing else. We don't have that kind of stuff right there, those little convenient word of the Lord that somebody, that he told me. We don't have that, but, but it can be that where I know the scripture so much that I feel like, you know, I feel like I think God's telling me to say this to you based on God's word or even just something that the Holy Spirit impresses you with because you are following the Lord and the Lord, I've had people call me, even some people in this church or talk to me, say, you know, the Lord impressed upon me, pastor, to come to you and say this, this, and this or come to you and talk to you about, and it doesn't happen all the time, but every now and then somebody says, you know, the Lord just put it on my heart to talk to you about such and such. And usually, I usually look for proofs of that, was that genuine? And, and a lot of times it is. But men and women of God, where there's revelation, like I have something to say to somebody. Do you have something you could say to somebody that they need from God, even though they might have a Bible in their house? Is there a friend that you can be a man of God for them? Is there a friend you can be a woman of God for them and give them a word? Not that, you're con- do, not that your, your friend is like a Jeroboam or a Jeroboam at, but maybe there's some, a word you could give. In this case, it was, <clears throat> it was responding to an error. <clears throat> so Jeroboam's having a grand old time, and he's a king, and he's powerful, and he had a lot of charisma if you look at his personality, and yet somebody had to confront him. Somebody had to confront him. Somebody had to approach him. I've talked to people before that were in positions of power and had some sway, or, uh, and, and I found out, even reading about it, even people you think, oh, that person's really powerful, or that person's really popular, or that person's wealthy, or that person's this or that, they often need a one-on-one person to get in their face. I'm, I'm serious. A lot, you know, a lot of our, lot of our presidents and stuff and governors, they'll have advisors that are personal advisors, and that's usually their job. It's just okay. Your job is to come get in my face, and usually they'll do it one on one. They said that was, <laughs> that was one of the weaknesses of our previous president Trump. He's, he didn't like that kind of stuff, which I don't think is a good trait. But they need that. And here's a guy, he gets in his face, but this had to be public. Because he had already violated God's word. So, Revelation, here he is. He's, he's coming. He's saying, look at verse 2. What is he revealed? Now, he has really a specific prophecy. He cried against the altar in the word of the Lord, saying, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord. And so, here's Jeroboam. And the man hears his altar. He's like, yeah, the smoke's going up. Maybe there's music. Maybe the priests are doing their thing. Maybe that golden, shiny calf is somewhere. And he's doing his thing, and he's got his hands... Uh, on the incense, and I don't know what they're doing. It really doesn't even sound that exciting to me, but apparently it was exciting to them. And uh, he's doing his thing. And then 
You just hear off in the distance. A man just ruined this worship service, man. Oh, altar, altar. Who is, can some, who is this, you know? Who's this guy blown? Who's the heckler, you know? You know, you might have somebody disrupt a worship service in a good church. That happens. But here it is. Who's this heckler out here? Oh, my goodness. And so what's this? Oh, what's he saying? And the guy cries out. The man of God says, oh, no, the, the man of God's actually not even talking to the guy offering. He's talking to, he's got his hands on this altar, and the man of God's talking to the altar. Hey, altar, got something to tell you. A child's going to be born. I think this happens 100, 200 years later. King Josiah, one of the good ones. An alt, a child's going to be born from the house of David. That means not from this little group of tribes. It's the one south of them. And a child's going to be born from the house of David. Josiah, give his name. Josiah by name. And this king is going to take, and all these priests, these types of priests around you, he's going to take and he's going to burn their bones right on this altar right here that that king's messing with. Now that was like insulting the altar. The altar is going to get used not for the incense, not for the cool worship service, but to actually consume the priests that were there. Actually, they did. They got buried, and he unburied. Josiah unburied them, brought those bones out, put them right there. So the guys that were standing around as priests, they were literally, one. I think it was about 200 years later. I don't get the exact timeline. But several, dozens of years later, uh, those men who was, they brought their bones out of caves and put it right on that exact altar, years later under the auspices of Josiah and burned those bones there. And so here you have this nice, this cool worship service going on, and they're like, what? This guy's bones going to be... This guy too? Who is this clown? Who is this guy? And you mean his, they're, they're going to burn his, these men's bones on this altar that I'm wearing? I mean, this is a nice altar. Look, this has got to be... Look at all these people here. I'm sure God approves of this. Are you telling me God's going to disapprove this you know again it doesn't matter how big a crowd is and how popular something is and how much favor man favor something gets if it violates a clear scripture it doesn't matter okay so this whole scene here would be great if the scripture supported it but the scripture doesn't so it doesn't matter how big and fancy and popular and followers and tweets and all that jeroboam would have had doesn't matter if it's breaking God's law, who cares? But if it does follow God's law and almost nobody follows it, then who cares? God, is improved. God approves of it. <clears throat> and that's the one I want to please. And so here he is, the man of God cries against the altar. The priest's bones are going to get burnt on this very altar you're working at. And by the way, O king, verse 3, he gave a sign the same day. This is a sign which the Lord had spoken. The altar shall be rent and the ashes that are upon it poured out. He said, just in case you don't believe this is going to happen some years later, right now, that altar is going to fracture and somehow it's going to go like this or whatever and the current ashes on it are going to go. And so it says, verse 4, it came to pass when the king Jeroboam heard that saying of the man of God which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand, so I'm, I'm assuming it went like this. He put forth his hand from the altar saying, lay hold on him. That he was something like this, standing up, and he goes, get that guy. Go nail him. Where's security? Go get him. And as he did it, it was like, oh, oh, man. 
that kind of hurts. It says, he put his hand forth, verse, um, middle of verse 4, lay, lay, thine hand up, lay, hand, lay hold on him, and his hand which he had put forth against him dried up so that he could not pull it again to him. Now, I want you to look at the, the fact that verse 4 says that he's retaliating at, at this voice of God, this man of God who's messing up what everybody else loves, He's like, go get that guy. He's, blow, he's messing up this party. There's commonly a retaliation against voices of truth that are speaking against things that are harmful, though it seems like in the moment it's a great fun party. Um, you know, I, sometimes it's not that Christians, like, well, I'm not trying to say like us, that so we should go around and say, where are people having fun? I'm going to go mess it up. I'm not saying we should be like that. You know, you know, we re, you rejoice with people that rejoice. It says Paul said that, and even the Ecclesiastes says, "There's a time to rejoice. There's a time to be happy. It's time to there's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to dance. There's a time to mourn." There's, you know, if the scenario is clean and decent, be happy with people. If the scenario is clean and decent and they're mourning, mourn with them. But if but if there's a grand party and it's just this is a sinful deal. I can't rejoice with that. Or if it's something that's a religiously speaking and it's a big old gathering of, you know, of people and but but there's a, but it's a false gospel or false message and we, we cry against it. You know? You know, the the people in our I think my wife was saying, you know, there's a few times the Pope has come through Arizona. Wasn't it like in the eighties? Your dad, I don't know if your dad did something. And some preachers, I'm sure those preachers then, I don't remember it, but Pope John Paul II, I think, came through Arizona, and there was a group of preachers like, we're going to protest it. That's an antichrist. You know, I don't, great God, he helps orphanages and all that stuff and is nice and smiles. But it's a false gospel, and he's a false leader. He's taking the place of Jesus. And so somebody has to speak out against that stuff, and there's usually retaliation. Um, how many of you ever heard of Ian Paisley? Raise your hand. Okay, Ian Paisley is a unique person, very unique person. They said, by the way, that actor Liam Neeson, you know, ever heard of him? He's a, they said, he said in, in his Wikipedia, when he was a young kid, Liam Neeson used to sneak into um, Ian Paisley's church in Ireland, sneak in there, and he wanted to listen to Ian Paisley preach. He was so powerful. He's, he's kind of had this, he's kind of like a, you know, he's not Baptist, he's Presbyterian, but kind of had this Martin Luther type uh, personality to him in that sense. Now, we're not Protestants, we're Baptists, but he was very much a gospel voice and anti-Catholic voice. So Liam Neeson said he'd sneak in there because he liked to, he just, he got something from the drama. I don't think there was a, I don't know that he believed the gospel, but he liked that. But uh, Ian Paisley was a very strong Presbyterian preacher, um, uh, and he's even preached in some of our American colleges, some of our fundamentalist schools even, and he was really hated by the Catholic Church and uh, by the Catholic Church both in um, Ireland and in Rome, and um, he even got to the point, he was also involved in politics, so he was somehow involved in their, I don't know how it's set up there in Ireland, but he was involved in their politics, such that he had to have a bulletproof vehicle because people were coming after him, you know. And so 
that's, that's, there was retaliation from, that, from his voice. So here you have this Jeroboam is retaliating against this no name. Who's this guy? Go get him! He's retaliating. That's often going to happen. Jesus says, marvel not if the world hates you. I should marvel if everybody loves me. Jesus, you know, what is there? Isn't there a scripture that says something like, watch out when the whole world's speaking well of you? You know, I'm paraphrasing. Jesus says, marvel not if the world hates you. And so there's this, there's always going to be a little pushback to a gospel message, to a voice of truth. There'll always be some pushback. Here's a, here's a pushback. But God sends reinforcement for this man of God. So he says, lay, he says, go get him. Lay hold on him. Verse, the middle of verse 4, and his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it again to him. And, or pardon me, verse 5, the altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So what happens? This, this guy speaks up, oh, altar, altar. And the, and the, the, the king, the king slash priest says, go get him. He's like, oh, my, oh, what's going on with my hand? He couldn't bring it in. He couldn't go back like this somehow. And, and then this, whoa, wait a minute. The altar breaks and these ashes poured out. He's like, oh. So God immediately validates this message right away. So that people there could say, oh, it looks, I think God is speaking here. The word of God has been here, is here. God is speaking. You know, we ought to, we ought to be, sometimes when, I know how it can be in church, where we're in church often, and this is a faithful church family, but we got to always come to church and say, God, speak to me in a unique way. Say something to me. You know, sometimes pastors' words resonate with me, sometimes they don't, but give me something. Brother Adam, the Bible teacher, uh, Brother Rusty, or just a word that was read, resonate with me today. Well, God did something to really resonate this visual thing here, breaking the altar, and this guy's, oh, something happened today at this church. It's a false church. But because there was a voice of truth from a man of God, God is reinforcing it. It's like when I told you the, um, you know, a little... I gave the example this morning of that missionary to New Guinea, Tim Hawes. And, and, and again, I don't think something like this happens all the time. But I said this in Sunday school, this missionary to New Guinea, he basically, long story short, he, they crashed he, you know, in the bad roads there in New Guinea. He had probably a little Toyota or something and truck slash land cruiser or something. And they crashed it. And the natives said, you know, you better lie to the insurance company, otherwise you will not get a reimbursement for this. Tell them that the brakes didn't work. And because the brakes didn't work, you crashed. Well, that wasn't true. He says that, that I, I'm not going to lie about it. We crashed, and now it doesn't. the whole vehicle is disabled. So I'm not going to lie, tell them that the brakes don't work just so I could get an insurance claim. So he told them as a testimony, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to just tell the truth. So he tells the insurance company the truth. We crashed this. It doesn't work. And he just left it in their hands in that sense. And... Um, Two months later, the insurance company gets back with them, and they pay them. They reimbursed them, even though it was their fault. They reimbursed them, and he, they said they paid them more money than what they paid for. And I think God did, this is just my view. I think God did that to be a testimony to these people. You know, God doesn't always do that. 
There's no like God, prosperity gospel type thing. But I think God's trying to show them, do right, tell the truth. And so God's reinforcing the word of this man of God here through this, through this sign and this man, oh, his hands, ah, you know. Sometimes people will tell you, I remember um, I reading about my father-in-law, I, I wrote a little note to myself and put it in my file. I thought it was a precious story. My father-in-law years ago, of course, he pastored in upstate New York, <clears throat> And I wrote this down. I thought, this is a good little illustration. He said that um, he said he witnessed to a couple in their home when he was in New York years ago. And they're very intellectual types, you know. And uh, even as he's witnessed to them, they just mocked him, you know. And they said, you know, they said they, they are big bang theorists. And they believed in evolution. And, and they had these very elaborate answers and explanations to the big bang and to evolution and all that stuff. And Pastor Roy finally said to them, after hearing their, you know, description of why they believe in the Big Bang and evolution and dismissed the gospel and the Genesis record, Pastor Roy said, well, what hope of eternity do you have? What hope of eternity do you have? And they're like, well, when you die, you die. That's it. Ha, ha, ha. And just kind of like snarky and, you know, very snide and proud. And so Pastor Roy began to weep for them. Even there in the house, my father-in-law, weeping for them, sad for them, burdened for them. And uh, he even walked, he says they began to mock him. Even as he was witnessing to them, they were mocking him. Oh, that stuff that's, you know, antiquated religious tradition, you know. And they mocked him in his witness, and then they mocked him even after he said, well, hope of eternity to have. And they said, well, when you die, you die. And he began to weep, and he said he started to walk out. He, he says, even as he walked out, they were mocking him, even as he walked out of the home. And, uh, but then he says, um, I wrote this note down, he said a few years later, he was in another state, and um, he was at a fellowship meeting with a bunch of pastors, and for some reason, this guy came walking up to him, gave him a big hug, and said, Pastor Roy, I'm so-and-so, and it was that man. And he said, I got saved. <laughs> Isn't that neat? You know, God's word came through to him. And he was that voice, kind of a weeping voice, and sustained it even through some retaliation. And God chose to give, let him taste the blessing of a, of, a, of a faith response. That doesn't always happen. But God chose to give him that blessing and reinforce that gospel witness. The man said, I got saved. Well, that's in this case, this man doesn't necessarily believe, but you get a reinforcement that, his message, the man of God's message is believable. Reinforcement. And then the king answered. So, so the king's like, get him out of here. Ah! Oh, oh, wait, I got dust all over me. And now we see this request. All of a sudden, this worship service turns into a prayer meeting. Um, he probably took his other hand. I got a prayer request tonight. I got a prayer request. It's right here. See this? And so he says, um, verse 6, the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again and became as it was before. Isn't that an, that is an act of grace, isn't it? So the guy calls out, preaches against the altar, Get him! Oh, oh pray for me! 
Can you pray for me? There's something, I don't know that Jeroboam had genuine faith in God. I mean, he heard from the Lord or previously a couple chapters earlier from a prophet. Like, pray to the Lord. I, I need prayer. I need help. This is a guy who's, who's instantly depending. He's an adversary, and now he's asking for help instantly. You know, he's praying for even the worst of the people. The Bible says in 1 Timothy about praying for kings and for leaders that we're supposed to pray for them. Paul says, I, I will therefore that prayer, supplications, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. So if I have somebody that says, pray for me, as a general rule, I should. There might be moments where I have to respond another way, but I need to pray for all, all types of people even the person that's against me. And so here he is. He makes this request. Think about, I've said this, I think, the other night. Who are the people that give us the most problems? He's like, my kids, Pastor, my kids, too. You know. <laughs> well, besides that, you know, think about people that give us the most problems or even people that are on, the, on our screens that, that really grieve us. Those are the people we still need to pray for, Right? That's what we should do. I mean, this, this man of God's praying for this man who's against what the nation needed. There's plenty. There's a whole political party who's against what this nation needs. And another one that's going that way. And so I got to figure out a way of praying for people, you know, leaders that grieve me, people that are near me, that, a neighbor that irritates me. Hey, is he, look, if it's a Jeroboam type, then I need to pray for them. And uh, at least even before they ask me, there may come a time where they will ask you, and your heart will already be ready to. So here it is, reinforcement and then request, and then the last thing, there was restraint. So he did pray. The Lord restored the, the, the king's hand and restored him again. It came as it was before. Now look at verses 7 to 10. This is the last point. It's a point, but it's also a point in which the, the man of God later fails on which was, becomes what describes the, next, the rest of this chapter. He has to practice restraint. Every good thing has to practice restraint. Verse 7, The king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I'll give thee reward. So here he was. Oh, get him. Oh, oh, pray for me. The man of God prays for him. Oh, boy, that's better. Hey, come on, come on home with me. I... I don't know if this, this may have been all sincere. Come home, I, I want to give you, feed you, give you some money, something, you know, just say thank you. This, this is say this is 100% sincere. Because there was this thing where sometimes they would give a gift to the prophet or the seer. There was some kind of custom that they did. In this case, this man of God out yonder crying against it was told, you don't do, a, you go there, you say your message, and you leave. You don't even drink water there. You don't eat there. You don't go home with anybody. In fact, the road um, I-7 coming in, you take I-11 going out. You don't come in, you don't go out the same way you came in. That's what that man of God out yonder who was preaching had to do. He had to come in, give his message, and start going out a different way. Do not, don't mess with anybody. That was his specific assignment. And it, was, it, had, it took restraint to do that. Because you'd be like, man, this might be pretty nice here. I got somebody who appreciates this message. It seems like right. he, you know, softened to it right away. 
So what does he say? Come home with me. And he says, verse 9, for so, uh, verse 8, the man of God said unto him, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was, was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, drink, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way he came to Bethel. He has to say no. You know, Spurgeon said, Half the world's troubles, its problems and woes came from a yes, which should have been no. And he had to say no to this scenario, this offer, so that he could fulfill the completely God's assignment for him. You know, not everything in life is saying no and being against everything, but a good portion of it is. What does it say in Psalm 1? It starts out by, blessed is the man that does not this, 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 but he does this. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but he does this. And so here's this man, he had to, like, I have to avoid any connection, any tie, any uh, alliance with this man. I need to go out another way and be completely independent with God. And so that's sometimes how it is with us. I have to, you and I, in order to be a, a true voice of truth for other people around us, there's got to be elements and moments of restraint. We're, 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 we don't just dive into everything. We don't just listen to everything, do everything, say everything, go where everybody else is running. Go another way. The Christian life is another way. Did you know that was one of the early names of Christianity was the way, if you look in the book of Acts. And so here's this man of God. Are you a man of God? Is there any traits there for you and I? We, we're sent. There's still people out there that need to hear from us. And we need to be men of God and women of God characterized by these things.